0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the History Respawn Podcast. This is Bob Whitaker. Today's episode is a discussion episode between me and my partner, John Harney. John, how's it going? It's pretty good, Bob. How are things with you? Going very well. Uh, so today we were going to discuss a few things. Uh, but first up, we were going to discuss Battlefield 1. And uh, we just covered Battlefield 1 in History Respawn uh, with an episode uh, that included a guest named Chris Kempshaw. who is an expert on the First World War and also has written a book called The First World War in Computer Games uh, for Palgrave in 2015. Uh, The episode is up now. The podcast just came out yesterday, and I feel like this episode was pretty successful. It kind of got to most of the issues that I wanted to cover, uh, but one of the issues that I think was left on the table uh, was the fact that uh, I didn't go into much detail with the multiplayer uh, with this game. And, uh, John, I don't know if you're aware, but, uh, in the single player campaign, you don't get the opportunity to play as anybody from the central powers. Uh, so basically Austria, Hungary, Germany, uh, and Turkey. Uh, but in the multiplayer, you actually do get a chance to play as members of the central power, uh, forces, and not just in, uh, Deathmatch, but also in these missions called Operation Missions. And John, have you followed any of the multiplayer coverage for Battlefield 1? Do you know anything about these?
1: A little bit. You know, Robert Rath has written some things. That I was commenting on Twitter a little bit. So bits and pieces, but kind of low on detail. I think it's intriguing, this intermingling of genre and content where, you know, I'm thinking of like a Halo game where you can play as the, as the Covenant kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an interesting... Mm-hmm perhaps unfortunate um, correlation there. <laughs> you know? But but go ahead, because I'm thin on the details of the
0: multiplayer. Yeah, so with the Operation missions, essentially you are playing the equivalent of a campaign mission, uh, so a set of campaign missions strung together, but they are multiplayer missions. So uh, essentially you are in these big kind of battlefield uh, multiplayer maps uh, playing alongside uh, 30 to 60 other players, and you are attempting to capture different objectives. And, you know, through the course of these maps, you capture objectives. And if you're successful, then you go on to the next map. And I think there's usually three or four of these strung together in an operation mission. Hmm. Uh, so these things can take a while, they can take upwards of an hour and a half. Uh, Sometimes if there's a little bit of back and forth, it could take up to two hours. So these are pretty significant time commitments. Uh, But what's interesting is that these operation missions, they are designed to cover specific campaigns during the First World War. Uh, So, for instance, uh, if you are playing as the attacking force, uh, if you're playing as the Germans, uh, you can select an operation mission which covers the uh, famous Ludendorff uh, campaign Uh, in the spring and summer of 1918. Now, this is kind of Germany's last-ditch attempt uh, to break through the Allied lines before the Americans uh, really come in force and make their presence felt on the Western Front. Uh, In addition, there's an operation mission which covers the British campaign uh, in the Suez zone uh, against the Turkish uh, forces uh, during, uh, I think it's uh, 1917 is when that campaign goes on. And in those operation missions, again, you have the opportunity to not just play as the Americans and the British, but also play as the Germans uh, and the Turkish forces. And what's great is that the operation missions, they start by giving you some, you know, kind of light historical background on the missions, on the campaigns, uh, the historical campaigns that they're based off of. And it's also done in the languages, Of those central powers so the German one of course will start in German and then the uh, the Turkish one will start uh, in Turkish so it's a nice little touch and it's one of the things about that game that I wish I had brought up during my conversation with Chris because uh, it is at least one instance in which you can play as the central powers uh, Mm -hmm. you know outside of the campaign itself you know what's interesting you bring that up Bob
1: a game series that gets brought up all the time is very famous for this, is the Assassin's Creed series. And when you think of um, not just kind of the... uh, You know, when you encounter a new NPC, like Leonardo da Vinci, you know, and it comes up, oh, go and read his bio, which you may or may not do. It's kind of up to you. Or Mm -hmm. the de Medicis and all these kinds of things. Um, It's kind of intriguing the way you talk about the historical context being uh, introduced in Battlefield 1 I feel like there's clear differences between the two but I'm intrigued by do you think there's connections there like what do you think of that like is does that content feel separate from the game as it were does it feel added mm-hmm. on or does it feel kind of integral beyond the, the the linguistic
0: choices well it does feel separate and Chris and I when we did the episode we got into this discussion about how if it's not in the main campaign then it kind of feels like you mm-hmm. can avoid it, yeah. which means that it's maybe not a part of the narrative of history that the game is presenting. So, for instance, if you were just to play the main campaign of Battlefield One, then you would come away with the opinion that the Americans had a dramatic effect on the First World War. You mm-hmm. would come away with the opinion that the real fighting only occurred in 1917, 1918 when the Americans started to arrive. And so you become, you know, very conscious of this kind of narrative about the war that doesn't include most of the war and it also you know of course the main campaign as we discussed in the episode doesn't include the french and doesn't include (laughs) the eastern front with the russians now of course it does include the gallipoli campaign it does include uh, the campaign by the british uh, with lawrence of arabia Uh, but You know, at the same time, these two significant powers in the war, these uh, kind of two parts of the war, particularly the Eastern Front, is not present in the main campaign of Battlefield 1. So that sends kind of, uh, you know, when I talked to Chris about it, it sends kind of an argument about uh, the game and the history, an argument based on absence, right? It's not necessarily saying that the French and Russians weren't important, but it is saying that... Uh, they're less important than the Americans. <laughs> right now, now, we guess that you know this is because you know this game is being pitched to primarily an audience in North America. Uh, but if that's the case, there's also no Canadians in the game. Um, so and there's no mention of any uh, Canadian specific campaigns. So that's complicating. Uh, I think for, you know, how the game presents history, you know, I think people have given it a lot of credit for what it's done and what it's done well. And the fact that it brings up uh, the campaigns in Arabia and in uh, Turkey, but at the same time, there's a lot more of the first world war on the table. Uh, But then you kind of have to wonder, I mean, because Battlefield one is kind of so associated with multiplayer, you kind of have to wonder, well, you know, actually is anybody playing Single player campaign, you know, maybe they are only getting their contact with the game's use of history through multiplayer. And in that sense, you know, with the inclusion of central powers, with the inclusion of different campaign zones, maybe the history they're getting from those multiplayer missions is actually better than what you get from the single player campaign. So, you know, I don't want to sit here and say that this type of history is lost, right? The operation missions, that history in there is lost because people are only playing the single player campaign. I'm saying that, you know, maybe it's the case that people are only playing the operation missions and don't get the kind of more heavy handed history that you get in the single player campaign because they just avoid it.
1: Yeah, It's interesting. It completely inverts the possible dynamic. Cause I was thinking as you're talking, this is honestly a rather creaky analogy, but, um, If we take the original premise that the single player campaign is the kind of narrative and the multiplayer are for people who, you know, are willing to spend two hours on a single match. I mean, I don't play Dota purely because I don't have time Mm -hmm. in my life. That's the only reason I don't play that game that I actually like playing. And Mm -hmm. literally because to become good at it, to really enjoy it is going to take some serious investment on your part. And so for me, it was this kind of case of, well, it's almost this is where the creaky analogy comes in. Like having, you know, Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan's new movie, which looks really exciting about the, the Dun, you know, Battle of Dunkirk. And then the people who watch the movie enjoy it and go on to some other movie versus people who watch the movie enjoy it and then buy a book or buy, even buy two books about Dunkirk. Do you see what I'm saying? Like people who are willing to invest further in learning mm-hmm. more. And it, it is a very creaky analogy. But again, inverting it around does make it interesting because I do think there's a large market who buy Battlefield games and just don't care about the single player campaign they yeah. literally go yeah. right into multiplayer.
0: Yep, so it, yeah, I agree. And that that changes everything
1: then. Yeah. <laughs> which it is does. really interesting.
0: It does it changes your whole perspective on the game right. because you know when Chris and I talked we were like, oh, this game doesn't let you play as the central powers. What is that saying? Are we saying the central powers are evil? Mm-hmm. Are we saying they are the equivalents of the Nazis during the Second World War? But in the multiplayer there is no such yeah. problem, right? You play as the Allied powers, you play as the central powers in equal measure. And so I think that you would get a very different perspective on the past and a very different kind of argument about the First World War if you were to play multiplayer and avoid the single-player campaign. So I I think it's an interesting thing. And, you know, it it makes me think a lot about how, you know, like you brought up Assassin's Creed, you know, the amount of history that you get from those games really depends on how often you go look for it, Mm -hmm. right? You know, and you mentioned bringing up uh, the Assassin's Creed database, you know, it's like, well, you know, you could get a little bit more historical detail. But, you know, as I think, you know, from the perspective of game developers, you know, you really have to leave that up to the player, because if you try to force that history down their throat, if you try mm. to make them go and, you know, watch this video about the past or read this little blurb about Leonardo da Vinci as part of the game, then, you know, the game kind of takes some freedom away from the player. It kind of maybe even gets it into the realm of edutainments, right. which I think, you know, if you are <laughs> buying a AAA game, yeah. you're not interested in, you know, being force-fed this historical narrative. No. So, you know, I think Battlefield 1 probably did the right thing with, you know, providing those things. Uh, they also have a codex in Battlefield 1, providing those things as just kind of appendices rather than integral parts of the narrative of the campaign.
1: Like the Civipedia. In civilization games and it's interesting because for us as historians of course one of the conundrums that modern historians face is how to escape linearity how to escape progressive kind of narratives of history and how difficult that can be and and people for a while um far from just the two of us have been arguing that video games offer exactly the chance to do that and it's really kind of interesting because battlefield one does that because you know the single player narrative, by definition, is a narrative. Multiplayer games are, yeah, pick one of these scenarios and play it. like it's kind of it very much is that escape from a progressive kind of telling of history where you're going from good to bad, where there are good guys and bad guys, which mm-hmm. is kind of fascinating, um yeah, you know if if anybody out there wants to give us a few thousand dollars, we could run a massive survey and figure out what battle for one players think. I mean, I'd be up for that. You know, if the, if, there, for that. if there's anyone yeah. from uh, major granting institutions who listen to our podcast regularly,
0: <laughs> and am waiting
1: to make the jump. This is the moment
0: to do it. We we can only hope. <laughs> uh, my, my email address is whitakerbob at gmail.com. <laughs> so please uh, forward all your correspondence to that. Um, and, you know, I think what I'm going to do going in the next few weeks is I think I might stream some of these operation missions. Oh, very to cool. to kind of give the audience, History Respond audience, a sense of, you know, how did this? How's the how's the history presented in multiplayer different from the history you get from single player? Because the HR episode that we did on Battlefield One is very focused on the single player campaign, which is interesting. But I kind of wish that I'd done a little bit more digging into the multiplayer uh, before we recorded. So I think I'll try to do that. Try to make up for that fault uh, by doing some live streaming in the next few weeks i
1: think that's great and maybe we have a follow-up conversation on the podcast as well to hear
0: hear about that yeah maybe so so uh you brought up uh civilization the civilopedia you've been playing the new civilization game civilization six i have so uh, you are preparing an episode on that i was wondering if you could kind of tell us what your preparation's been like uh who you are kind of get to talk to for that episode and then also just kind of what your general impressions of the game are so far.
1: Sure. Um, so the guest we have lined up is Dr. Tony Andrade. He's a full professor at Emory University. Um, he is like I am. Well, he's a China specialist, but actually from the start, he's kind of been um, a transnational historian, as uh, was a cool word to use a few years ago, which is that he has a lot of training in Dutch history. Um, in addition to Asian history. And so he kind of started out by writing about the Dutch in Taiwan, because the Dutch were in Taiwan in the 1600s. He's written a couple of books that are in this sweet spot where they're extremely um, kosher from an academic point of view. They're they're rigorous. Uh, <laughs> but they're also, uh, they're kind of what I would call public facing, which is to say that Tonio, as I tell my students, he's writing with humans in mind. Um, so he wrote a very good book about Taiwan, um, and it's kind of, the, one of the early and undertreated conflicts between a European power and the, Chinese, and the Chinese, which was the Dutch fighting the Chinese in the 1680s. That book is called Lost Colony, and he's more recently written a book called The Gunpowder Age. And he's really interested, as many Asian historians are, he's really interested in questions of how do we focus on global history? How do we talk about it? How do we address these issues? issues that we have which is that we view the world through a eurocentric industrial revolution you know lens right like the yeah. or
0: even worse an anglo-american
1: lens right even worse and and I, I encounter this in class all the time but you have this conundrum where people often talk about for example the japanese in the 1870s choose to massively revolutionize their political system and their industrial capacity largely along american and british lines and um, because You get better guns and ships and you know history kind of went this particular direction Um, and so this is the huge kind of conundrum that you face so Tonio you know talks about that in his work he's an engaging guy I'm looking forward to having him as a guest he's also someone who likes to play civilization games so that's always a great bonus in our guests Um, so in terms of prep he and I are going to start having conversations soon about some of the things that he would like to touch on Um, and I've just kind of been recording footage and playing a lot of the game and like I always do when we make episodes, and kind of making notes to myself, and kind of making little asides. And Civilization VI, of course, is really interesting because it's such a popular game, popular series, and it's you know, well, it's not the sixth Civilization game. I actually don't know what it, it must be, the eighteenth or twentieth or something, but it's the sixth major installation of a Civilization game, and yeah. um. That brings a lot of interesting baggage to it. Um, one of the decisions I'm currently mulling over is how much do I want to talk about previous civilization games, um, and mm. I'm not really there yet. And I think I think I'll let our guest be a part of that decision. Mm. What do you think, Bob? What do you think about kind of talking about the history of the series itself? Because i I don't want to lose up. I don't want to lose valuable time that will be spent talking about the historical questions the game raises. You know.
0: Well, I mean, I think. You know, if you are to place this in terms of the entire series, I think that this game makes some major changes, particularly with the user interface. Mm-hmm. I think that this game does a very good job, and I think a lot of other critics have already said this, so this game does a very good job of giving you the pertinent information that you need right on the main screen rather than having to go through a menu mm-hmm. to find it out. I think this game has a very clean user interface. There's not a lot of, you know, what you might call junk (laughs) on the screen that's not really worthwhile. Um, As far as other major changes, I really like how this game has decided to use uh, the worker units. I think they're called builders in this game. You know, it used to be in uh, games past, uh, the settler unit, the worker unit, used to be a unit that you would have to manage Uh, throughout the entire course of the game in order to build roads in order to build irrigation in order to build forts whatever you wanted but in this game they give you a unit called a builder that you only have to manage for three turns Mm -hmm. basically uh, if you use them correctly or if you use them quickly which I think is a huge, huge improvement, um, you know, because it was the case in previous Civ games where you would have a worker unit who might actually live the entire game, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, three or four millennia. Right. <laughs> you would have <laughs> the, same, the same worker unit. The same hammer uh, and tongs and 2100. same hammer and tongs, yeah. yeah. So that would be kind of ridiculous. So I like the idea that this game presents of basically having a builder unit, which is essentially I think giving a more historically authentic view of how public work projects actually get done, right? You know, having a group of workers work on a project for a decade, right? rather than having one worker <laughs> who survives, you know, four millennia of doing the same thing, of building roads. And then, and then the
1: military engineer comes later and yeah. it offers a different yeah. flavor, which is quite intriguing, because as much as if your civilization has a special um, tile, so for example, the French can build chateau which bring you, give you a culture bonus. Yeah, the builder does that. But generally speaking, the builder unit does farms and mills and pastures. And, you know, yeah. it's all kind of a, in a similar genre of kind of labor, whereas the military yeah. engineer comes on and he's the guy that can build your hangars, airstrips, more modern yeah. roads and things like that. And that's a, yeah. kind of an intriguing uh, decision
0: there um, conceptually. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, a couple other things that I like about the game uh, at least from a historical standpoint, I like the fact that you really only learn about what other civs are up to, what other competing AI opponents are up to through trade routes. And you'll get these notices saying, uh, you know, such and such uh, trader just learned that uh, the Egyptians are, you know, building the pyramids. Uh, Or you'll learn later on in the game, uh, our intrepid reporter, uh, journalist in the modern era, uh, it just discovered that the Chinese are building the Apollo program right And I like how it frames that knowledge about other civilizations through trade or through media. I feel like it's much more historically authentic than previous games where you just kind of got a prompt from the from the AI in the game uh, from uh, basically uh, your managers telling you what's been going on. I feel like it feels it's a nice little touch that feels more historically authentic. Now, the other thing I like is uh, the kind of use of peace treaties in this game. So, uh, for instance, when you go to war uh, during this game, you don't you can take over enemy cities, but you don't officially take them over until you've signed a peace treaty and those cities are ceded to your territory or to your civilization, mm-hmm. which, again, I think is a nice touch for you know, kind of more historical authenticity. And it also gives the peace treaty a much more, much more weight. It gives it much more importance uh, because, you know, you could have taken over a bunch of cities, but then in the negotiation for the peace treaty, you can actually end up losing some of those cities, but you also might gain, you know, gold or resources. Uh, And so I think that that is a much more, again, historically realistic, historically authentic touch Uh, to this game. And I think it gives the peace treaty something more to do in the civilization series than just being an end to war. It makes it a negotiation, which I think, you know, is a a nice touch. Right.
1: I've been, the game I've taken the furthest um, is with France, is with the France game. And I have used that treaty system. I have locked Egypt in. Egypt is to my south, and I have Otto von Bismarck to the hell out of them. Like, they're just, they're never leaving. We are friends forever. Yeah. I will never go near them because I just don't need to worry about them. And I haven't played the game, and I've, it's interesting, although it does, it's pretty good to give you information. There's other things you don't really figure out if you've been playing for a while, which is a little bit frustrating, but I don't really mind because it's not like I was going to play one playthrough and never play it again. I feel like I'm discovering little elements about the game. But I kind of did a classic Civ thing, which is I, I my France game is on this world with this kind of massive continent in the middle, but it's it's kind of a strange reverse lowercase h-shaped continent. So you've got this mm. massive bay. And I just decided I want to control this bay. And the Vikings are kind of in the middle, and they're ruining it. So I just took them out um, yeah. in a classic Civ game way. And I didn't use a Cassus Belli I should have used. It would have helped a little bit. Um Or maybe it wouldn't help as much because everybody hates me. I mean, just they hate me. And I went on to defeat the Indians. And so now I control this large continent. And it's a really interesting game because in the year 1950, France is the world's most powerful power. France and Germany Mm -hmm. are vying with each other to be the most important technological power. France is comfortably the most important country culturally. um, But everybody hates France. And it's just a really interesting... This is why this is what Civ can do when it's doing things well. Do you know what I mean? It presents a fascinating yeah. alternative history that's just really fun to play with.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny because you know, you mentioned everybody hates France in your game. I mean, the warmonger penalties oh, yeah. huge. in this game are huge. I mean, you can uh, try to work around it a bit, but I mean it really kind of hinders your use of warfare as a tool of diplomacy. You know, if your goal is not to just conquer the world um it becomes very difficult especially late in the game to take over other civilizations now of course i think it's interesting that there's no warmonger penalty for the ancient era right so if you are an ancient power you can gobble up opponents you know as quickly as you can build units and you know take them over as long as you're successful but after that point i mean that warmonger penalty becomes so severe that you really have to be you know, in, a, in an alliance, you have to have a calculated decision. You've got to also be sure to denounce your opponent before you declare war. Otherwise, the warmonger penalty will be many times greater. And it really does influence, especially late in the game, I'd say, you know, going from the Renaissance era forward, really does influence how you approach diplomacy. I would say, on the negative side, uh, the fact that there really isn't a diplomatic victory available in the game that's that's a bit of a problem i think you know a lot of people have been talking about that they might patch that in or put it into a dlc later on i think that would be a good move Uh, but you know i think the kind of interesting things this game does with peace treaties with the warmonger penalties um are are pretty significant changes and their changes i think should be included in subsequent civ titles
1: I agree. And I. what fascinates me, you already brought it up, I was going to bring it up too, the fact that you can be a really aggressive jerk early on, and the more quote-unquote advanced the world becomes, the tougher it becomes to be that guy. Now... That also plays into a common issue with civilization, which, which is a valid issue, which is it does tend to default to this progressive idea of history, things get better, which is actually kind of a yeah. core part of what Civ is trying to do ideologically, like this idea that we are in a more Gene Roddenberry style, we'll get there, you know what I mean? It, it kind of embraces this progressive idea. I'm curious to see in this game, this game, like many Civ games, has gotten to a point where I'm moving some stuff, I have a lot of fortified units. I press the next turn button and I get out my book and read a few pages as I wait for it to come around. And I have a good computer. It's just mm. a lot going on. I do too. And yeah, I'm, I and I'm too. okay with that. I'm, it is what it is. But I'm mostly hanging in there to see, so are they going to do it? I'm being denounced regularly. I'm getting these bizarre offers of like quote unquote trade offers where I'm basically being asked to give them lots of stuff and not getting anything in return. Are they going to form a grand alliance against the French who everyone seems to agree are massive jerks? Mm-hmm. And I want to see if that happens, because it hasn't yep. happened. I'm kind of surprised. And is it because I'm too powerful? Is it just a simple kind of AI question? I don't know. Um, I, I kind of want to see what happens because I I feel like, and I you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff out there, both praising and criticizing the game. I feel like there are, um might be issues. With the AI it might not quite be perfect, but this game has played out really well. This game has given me a fun narrative, which is what these games do so well, particularly for us as mm-hmm. historians. It's what I like about Crusader Kings too. The Crusader, Crusader Kings 2 is so good at letting you build a really unique narrative, you know. I was in France and I briefly ran a half of the Holy Roman Empire and then I was beaten. It was great. I started all over again. There's no sense of like trying to control all of Europe. And this is the first civilization game where, yeah, okay, I'm defaulting a little bit to trying to be super dominant, but I'm kind of coexisting. And um it's working. Which yeah. is great. You know. Yeah. The other thing I want to say too, I jump back a little bit in terms of the use of the map and the visuals. First of all, I love the visual style of the game, but I don't know what's going on a lot of the world, as you said, except for these missives I'm getting, and it means I actually pay attention to those updates, whereas in every mm-hmm. other type of this game, I've never paid attention to those kind of AI updates because I have no idea what's going on. Because if I haven't sent mm-hmm. someone over there recently, I've removed, you know, the "here be dragons" type you know, complete lack of anything.
0: Fog of war. Yeah, and yeah. now
1: I have, you know, there's like an intermediate fog of war, which is pretty great. I like that. Yeah. That actually, you know, I haven't put the investment. I don't have, I didn't bother with spies. I haven't made the effort to find out what's going on in the world. And so I don't know what's going on in the world. Um, And that that was a really good choice. You know, there was a lot of, there's a lot of talk about, you know, having districts and, and, and using the land and the visual map stuff. And I didn't find that to be as, groundbreaking as i thought it was going to be i didn't either but the use of the yeah. map
0: stuff i thought was spot on and is really really strong mm-hmm. i agree with that um i would say though that it is annoying that you have this kind of intermediary fog of war after you've gone through a territory which then spawns it seems like endless amounts of barbarians <laughs> yeah that's true in, into into the modern age yeah and i just i wonder i mean you know, I've never really thought, you know, I think when you're thinking in terms of kind of just a gameplay standpoint, I mean, the barbarians are there to encourage you to build a military, right? That's the gameplay device for that. But I'm wondering if, you know, the developers of Firaxis are trying to make a different argument by having such marauding barbarians in this version of Civ. I mean, I think there's almost a case to be made that they actually feel like this time as if they are kind of, an extra civilization that you can't control. Right. Um, And, uh, you know, I think there's some interesting arguments that could be made, you know, what are they trying to say Mm -hmm. about human history? I mean, it's kind of, it's almost like a case of, you know, globalization and its discontents, right? Right. This group of people who just will forever (laughs) deny civilization, will forever deny progress. And the fact that they're so powerful, in this game and that they stay consistently powerful throughout the course of the game, I just think is a really interesting turn Mm -hmm. for the series because I feel like, you know, at the beginning, they're almost like, um, the, the, at the beginning, they're like in any other civilization game where they feel like, uh, they feel like creeps Mm -hmm. in MOBAs, right? Right. Right. Just kind of use these guys as a punching bag to get stronger, to take on other civs. Right. But in this version of Civ, they almost feel like they're an independent power on their own.
1: I I love that MOBA analogy. That's awesome. I think that I agree with you. I was listening to the Three Moves Ahead podcast, and they pointed out that in some occasions, and I just did it to uh, India, you take a city, you defeat them, and some of their military units out and about become – they become barbarian units. Oh, Which is really interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, Yeah, I didn't know it until I heard the podcast because I was like, oh, okay. That, that, that explains why there's a barbarian battering ram just sitting outside my city. What's intriguing to me is they seem pretty chill and they're leaving me alone right now. Um, but I agree with you that the barbarians, it's an intriguing decision. And part of me wonders, I wonder is this a baby step towards when the procedural generation technology takes us to a place where you can have lots and lots of different societies. So are the Irish going to try and persist? Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. how do you handle countries like Ireland, Taiwan? um, you know, small places, um, you know, who aren't who aren't the traditional power. One of the ways you do it is you you let people, you know, you can do the Scythians or something and make them a great power. That's one way to do it. But if I, I think this might be something I wonder to what extent the barbarians and the city states can become merged further. Because one of the huge mm-hmm. successes for me in Civ Six, in my opinion, is that I have that feeling I used to have way back when I played Civ One. It just it just it's just fun to play. It works in this kind of Civ level that Civ Five just didn't But they also have iterated on some of the stuff they've been developing with the last few games. I think city states have never been better, in my opinion. I think city states work really nicely, and so I just wonder—is that like a long-term goal? Like, I'm really intrigued, and I think you're onto something here. Do they have plans for the barbarians in future games, where this is going to get cool? I, I I like to think they will, and I think the city-state system in the new game is promising in that direction.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, I guess that does it for our Civ Six impressions what anything else come to mind what i felt bad crushing gandhi so i think the game is a success <laughs> yeah so i've played <laughs> i've played about 20 hours of the game so far and i've had i think one completed game as america as the american civilization which you know, <laughs> of had an hour-long conversation <laughs> about that idea but i had that game and you know, I I had an instance, actually, kind of similar to what you had, where I got to the 1950s, and it became very clear that the other civilizations hated me, but <laughs> they, they didn't have the power to take me on, so they just kept denouncing me right. uh, until I eventually got a cultural victory, uh, using tourism, actually, ah, uh, was the basis of yeah. my cultural victory, but... Uh, you know, it was it was a fun game, but I think that that game, like a lot, a lot of other Civ games, has problems with the end game. Right? Yeah. You know, how do you finish up yeah. a Civ game? And you know, I think uh, with Civilization, I always like the start of a game. I very rarely enjoy the last third of the game. And uh, I wonder, you know, are there going to be improvements? Are there going to be expansion packs that come down the road mm-hmm. that'll that'll work on that problem?
1: I mean, people, there are many people out there who swear that playing Civ Five without Brave New World is pointless. And it's a series that has a long history of expansions that make huge changes. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the base game is really solid, but I agree. There's late game stuff. Religion stuff is kind of weird. So, like, every game I play, it seems like I've been converted to a new religion by, like, you know, 200 BC or something. Like, it's just... (laughs) They just eviscerate me, like I'm just annihilated, yeah. no matter how early I build a holy site and stuff. Um, <laughs> and it's a pity, because I, I I do like the idea of role-playing like a fundamentalist Catholic uh, Chinese state or something that like, you know, runs the world.
0: <laughs> That's kind of what I'm doing now. I've started a new game as Sumeria, and uh, I'm founded a religion. I'm attempting to convert everybody, all my neighbors, all the city-states to that religion. And it's a it's a it's a military theocracy, essentially. So you know if anybody disagrees with me, if they have their own religion, I've been going to war with them. and you know, playing in Sumeria, you get a lot of bonuses early on for military units. right. So I've been taking full advantage of that. Basically, doing this one is a a military playthrough, whereas the American right. campaign was a, very much a uh, you know a, a cultural victory. So, I will say, um,
1: I, I really do yeah. think, I know I said it a few minutes ago, I really do think that Civilization VI, at least for me personally, I feel like I have more options to play games that aren't military options, Although the military option is still kind of central. Mm. And interestingly, mm. really interestingly, um, yeah, being a theocracy can be quite overpowered, because once you get the perk or whatever, you know the card that lets you buy stuff with faith... And you can use faith to like buy soldiers. You can really accumulate yep. faith in massive amounts. And so yep. if you if you feel like playing a crazed theocracy that destroys the world, Civ Six has your back. Like
0: that is a very <laughs> that is totally a valid option. Oh,
1: Gameplay dear. wise.
0: <laughs> Gameplay wise. Yeah, let's make sure we're not endorsing this as actually a yeah. future course of real world policy. No, definitely not. Uh so I wanted to wrap up the podcast by discussing the class that I just finished teaching uh, for this fall term, uh, which was uh, Playing the Past, Presenting History Through Games. And uh, this is a class that we had talked about on the podcast previously. I had posted up the syllabus on historyrespawn.com, and I just kind of wanted to go through and give a little bit of a debrief about how that class went. And, you know, John, I had had a lot of discussions with you about this class before I started it. And you know you had been teaching your center term class kind of uh, along similar lines. And you know, I think the class ended up going very well. and I think um, I had a very similar experience to the one you had where you know, I had the students in this class as their final project create their own historical game, and I had them use twine uh, in order to create basically text adventures mm-hmm. uh, based on their own historical research. And I was very worried initially that the students would have to be basically, uh, you know, have me standing over their back, making sure that they were working on this project, making sure that it was up to snuff. But you know, at the end of the class, I can look back and say they really, they really took that ball and ran with it. I really didn't have to encourage them to make the projects excellent because they were already doing it and. You know, when we had the final presentation in class and then we also had the game expo, everybody who played the games afterwards came away with the impression that, uh, you know, these games really had a lot of thought put into them, you know, had used excellent resources and were really compelling reasons to offer the class and to do the class over again. That's awesome. I'm really glad to hear that. You know, when we had our
1: conversations at a time, I was confident from the start that it was going to go really well just because just the way you and I were talking about it and because I have been quite fortunate to have similar experiences. But as we both know, and as anyone listening who has to teach knows, you know, you can be told these things. And you until you've experienced it, you have all these fears and these concerns. You know, you're, you don't know what the dynamics going to be like with the students. You have faith in them. You're hopeful they're going to take it and run with it. Um, and so it's really heartening for me to hear the experience was so positive because it just goes to show that like this is we're on something here. Do <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and that students, yeah. not only that they do the work, but like not just in the sense of like building a game and thinking up ideas, but getting into the library, you know, and, and getting into the archives available to them online and really doing research. That's been so hugely encouraging for me as an historian. And it dispels any kind of myths that students are in some way not interested uh, in history, yeah. you know, unless you yeah. can sex it up or whatever. I suppose that the video game class is one way of doing that. Um, but the truth is they do they do serious historical work for these games to actually work.
0: They do. And, you know, the amount of writing that they put into it, I told them, you know, I wanted them to create games that you could finish in about 10 minutes and would basically have the same amount of written material that you would have for, say, a 10 to 15 page research paper, mm-hmm. which is, you know, very typical for undergraduates. Uh, and I would say that all, more than half of the games in this class ended up writing about 20 pages worth hmm. of material, wow. you know, just kind of crazy amounts of drafting and then redrafting based on criticism. And I think that the final projects were were pretty impressive. I mean, I, I'm you know, of course I'm biased, they're my students, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I think that they really, they did exactly what i hope they would do they they took the ball they took this twine project and they really filled it in with their passion and i think that the class wouldn't have worked otherwise um i just kind of give you a, a rundown of the games that were created um and you know i hope to in the next month or so have these games posted on history respawn.com but just to kind of give you a sense of what games uh, were created for this class i had a game on the Justinian Plague uh, during the 7th century AD. Uh, Then we had a game on the Black Plague uh, during the Middle Ages. Uh, We had a game set in Reconstruction, Louisiana. Louisiana. Let me redo that. We had a game set in Reconstruction, Louisiana on the Colfax Massacre. Uh, Then we had a game set in early 20th century Colorado on the Colorado Labor Wars. Uh, We had a game on the Spanish Civil War, uh, a game on the uh, Battle of the Il Drang Valley, I think it's called, 1965 in Vietnam. Uh, And then finally a game based on oral histories uh, in the fall of communism in Russia uh, during the 1990s. Uh, So as you can tell from this list of games, there's a lot of death and violence and disease. For those of you not familiar with
1: undergraduate history, this
0: is the norm. This is this is what's popular, <laughs> death, violence, and disease. Yeah, especially the Black Plague. Very, very. Oh, popular. I know. Tell me about the it, students. Yeah. Um, but still, you know, I mean, even though they kind of focused on the highlighted parts of the past, um, these students did a lot of work on these projects. They did a lot of research, and in some cases, like the game on Russia in the 1990s, did actual oral history interviews. So I think I've been very pleasantly surprised. With a class, I mean, I think, you know, things didn't go perfectly. Uh, I think, you know, some of the students complained about having a little bit too much work to do, mm. especially when we did uh, response papers for each of the games that were due on Thursday uh, of each week. Uh, students wish that uh, maybe they had had the whole weekend uh, to play the game and then write a response paper for mm-hmm. Tuesday. So that's something I might change. Uh, but the students did like the structure of the class. They liked the fact that they were making a game themselves while also analyzing and nitpicking uh, other historical video games. And they also liked having articles to read about the games and the historical material before actually playing the games. Mm. And that was one of my main concerns beginning the class if I should switch those two. If I should have them play the game and then read about it. But mm. they, they liked it the first way. Um and I think that the the game expo we had went pretty well. But uh, you know a lot of the students said that they would have liked to have gotten feedback separate from the actual playthrough with the guests mm-hmm. at the expo. So I had them at the game expo actually sitting with their game, uh, partly to give historical background to the players who came by, but then also to fix the game in case it broke. Right. Uh, but they said that uh, some of the feedback they got kind of felt a little... Uh, Hesitant, primarily because the person who had made the game was sitting right there. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Watching them uh, fill out the feedback form. So, uh, that's something I might change going forward. But all in all, I think it was a pretty successful class.
1: That's great. It sounds like a huge success. And, you know, the things like their issues and workload when things are handed in, that's, you know, that's pretty common territory when you're teaching any kind of class. And it's interesting, you know, I, I. I love the structure, the way you did it, and I I like this idea of building, you know, it's a video game class. I mean, I teach this intensive one, and so for me going forward, I'm, I'm kind of thinking to myself, so do I take my center term class and do I try and do a semester-long version, which I could do and, and kind of follow your example there? Or maybe am I close enough where I, in my modern China class or my modern Japan class or my Age of the Samurai class, where instead of one of the papers, they'll make small twine games or something like that? It's kind of an interesting thing ahead of us because every time i've taught it twice you've now taught it once we'll be teaching these classes again and i just get more and more confident that that it, it just is worked each time like it's not yeah i don't think that well you're always lucky to have fantastic students who want to work with you but i don't think we've been lucky in the sense that these are exceptional moments i, I think that we're on to something here with with uh with how this is how this is helping students generate their own conversations and content yeah. for lack of a better term yeah
0: and you know as a as a professor, I'm just tired of reading research papers. <laughs> I think that those those papers, they have a purpose. Obviously, they do. They do. But I think at the same time, <laughs> we need to be thinking about other ways to present material as historians. And I think that that's one of the arguments that mm-hmm. uh, you know my students and I have all kind of agreed on. With this class and you know I think these twine games are kind of good examples of how that might be done and you know to your idea of maybe bringing this kind of setup to a different class I I did something similar with my uh, class on the history of information warfare where I actually had the students if they wanted to they could analyze and critique and offer improvements for Mm -hmm. games about spies and espionage Mm -hmm. and hacking. Uh, that were out there and that assignment went over very well mm-hmm. and again i think it helps you know offering up a different medium for criticism for presenting research because it it engages different types of students you know i had a couple of students in this most recent class on video games who said oh, i would never have been as passionate or as interested in writing a research paper as i was for making this game mm-hmm. and i think it you know it gave them a new appreciation for history and writing history and doing research on history that they just wouldn't have gotten out of a traditional assignment. The next step is to figure out a way to help this experience
1: build their enthusiasm for research papers. But uh, I don't want to shy away from the importance of video games and the value of video games and the value of technology. But I also think it's important to point out that it kind of isn't actually as exceptional as people are worried it is. I mean, we're in the same area here as doing more oral presentations in the place of written work. There's lots of different ways to do this. I have a colleague here at Centre College, Stephen Baldwin, and whenever he teaches 100-level classes, for at least one of the papers, he gives them the option of doing a work of art in reaction to the topic instead of a a standard paper. And he gets – you know, a lot of students just do the paper, but he gets poems and he gets paintings and he gets all these interesting things, you know. And they have to kind of put a, a little bit of writing alongside it to kind of contextualize it. Um, But in that sense, I think the video games both do represent a genuinely exciting frontier, but also especially perhaps I suppose I'm talking more about other faculty, to be honest, rather than students for people who are skeptical or even worried or nervous. It's like this is just one way to diversify things in a meaningful way Um, and not to replace the research paper, like you say, but just why not have more strings to our bow is I guess where I'm coming from there.
0: Right. I agree. All right, that's going to do it for our podcast today. Again, you can catch us on YouTube. We've also got a website, www.historyrespond.com, And if you're a fan of our work, if you'd like to try supporting us, then please visit our page on Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com forward slash respond. Until next time.